Hello, Detroit and the world, and welcome to Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network studios on the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Donna Givens-Davidson, and today I am flying solo because Orlando is traveling for a nonprofit board that he chairs. So thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of, of authentic voices for real people in the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so turn on those notifications. Today, we welcome a colleague, Sonia Mays, who serves as president and CEO of Develop Detroit, a real estate and housing development firm focused on improving housing stability and creating economic opportunities across Detroit. She previously served as senior advisor to the emergency manager of Detroit. In that role, Mays played a key part in guiding the city through the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. She was responsible for a diverse range of legal, financial, operational, land use, and economic development activities across Detroit's restructuring efforts. Mays earned a bachelor's, master's, and law degree from the University of Michigan, and she was elected to a four-year term on the, for the Board of Education for the Detroit Public School Community District in 2016 and again in 2020, where she has served as treasurer for both terms. Sonia, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you, Donna. I am finally here yes. after listening for so many episodes. I'm finally in the chair. I'm excited. Well, well thank you for joining us. Um, so before we start, um, how is your day? It's hot outside today. Last little cry of summer. It's kind of humid, but it's a good day. Oh, good. Good. Um, I'm having a good day as well, although I'm feeling a little bit pressure to, um, because we have an event taking place today, is the celebration for our LEAP Fellows, the Lower East Side um, Action Plan. We have Sustainability Fellows, where we do a lot of training for residents in the community, resident leaders. We p- provide um stipends for a project they choose and we're going to be celebrating them a little bit later but anyway um we have a limited time and you have done so much in detroit that i feel like i need you for about two or three podcasts (laughs) i went over some of what we want to talk to but you know you are a person whose resume is so long although you are not an old person um, but you've done a lot in a short period of time um, and i want to make sure that we Um, have an opportunity to discuss your experiences, because I think you have a unique lens on the city of Detroit. Um, You, um, your background is just fascinating. And so um, you've been in the thick of decision making, you're currently engaged in housing development, which is something I deeply care about. And you're leading efforts to improve public education in the city of Detroit, another thing that is just of great interest. So I want to start from the beginning. Um, Let me just start with this. You went to U of M for three degrees. I went for one. Um, Go blue. blue. (laughs) Um, And you know, Detroit has had a lot of leaders um, that I actually came from U of M, right? So Mayor Duggan got his law degree from Michigan. I don't know about undergrad. Um, I think it was undergrad. Okay, there so too. he got two degrees there. And uh, Robert Orr also had his law degree from Michigan, didn't he? Kevin Orr. Kevin Orr. Yes, and he, he went there Kevin for undergrad as well. Okay, well, you know what? So I'm <laughs> feeling like a slacker here, but um, there's a lot of that. And then Rick Snyder was also a... Um, University of Michigan graduate. And so for a period of time, Detroit had a lot of University of Michigan in the house. So 
um, you know. Yeah, I just, think it still does. I mean, I it, there there are a lot of Wolverines floating around Detroit <laughs> and it, doing the work that you do, doing you know other positions of leadership. So they're just um, yeah, it's a great school right yeah. down the road. Yep, we're all over the place. <laughs> so I wanted to talk is the reason I asked you to be on the podcast. You have a really you know, interesting job. I actually was one of the people who held, I think, a forum for you when you were running for re-election. I had an opportunity to question you there. But you had such an interesting post a couple weeks ago when, unfortunately, um, we learned of a public official being indicted for um, public corruption. And you raised such a compelling question. So rather than me repeat that question, I'm going to ask you to just share the question that you were asking on Facebook. Yeah, so so specifically the question was, do we pay our elected officials, our public servants, do we pay them enough for the jobs that they're asked to do and the, the quality of work that we expect them to perform at? And um, what was what was lurking behind that question, obviously it was a response to what was going on uh, in current events in Detroit. Uh, I am an avid news follower, no surprise there. Um, but what really was motivating that that question, Donna, is I I'm a natural problem solver, and so when I think I see a issue, when I think I see a problem, I immediately go into okay, what would it take to actually fix that? What would it actually take to end up with a different outcome, a different result? And if I think about kind of the arc of Detroit politics over the last pick a number, right, fifteen years, twenty years. Um, we have had uh, a handful of politicians who have got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. I'm not really interested in sort of dissecting individuals um, that have been caught up in this, but I am asking this bigger, broader question of, um, is this the result that we expect our political system to produce? Do we expect that our political campaigning and election system is going to even periodically produce these instances where we have politicians who are being uh, charged with, accused of, convicted of bribery. And it's certainly not the political system that I want. And so, you know, I threw that out there really to have a conversation about what would have to change with the structure, with the system to get better outcomes. I think that's a great question. And actually, you know, when you look at public corruption, you most often see it in local places. You don't see it as often in D.C., even though there might be a lot of corrupt behavior, but not illegally corrupt. Because, you know, there's corruption that we can talk about, moral corruption, ethical corruption, and then legal corruption, right, when people cross the line. So when you ask that question, a couple of things sprang to mind. One of them is um, a very personal consideration because over the years I have a lot of political ideas. My undergrad degree is in political science, and people say, "Oh, you should run for office," and it's like I can't. Should run for office. I cannot afford to run for office. So when you make the systemic change that is necessary, I'm going to have that conversation. And I'm just joking. I mean, that's not the only consideration. But the other thing is, you outline the many roles and responsibilities: loss of privacy, the demands, the expectations are so high you can't afford to fail, and the other other thing is, you know, usually when you're making about $80,000, which is where our city council members are, you know, if you're living in Detroit, you're living well. So you, if you're making $80,000, you know, you're the rich relative in a lot of communities. But if you are a public official hanging out with billionaires, you're the poor folks. Okay. And it kind of, I think, would impact your psyche in a way that we don't really think about. Like, I'm just hanging out with people like me. 
People make a little more than me. People make a little less than me. But I'm not hanging out in a whole different peer group. But when we went on vacation, I went on vacation with my husband. We went to Naples, Florida, and we were in, you know, a millionaire, billionaire community. So everybody was rich. And even the, you know, everything was expensive. Everybody was rich. And, you know, I'm thinking if I stay here a little bit too long, I'm going to start feeling a certain way. I wonder if that happens to politicians. I imagine it does, right? So there, you know, people are motivated by all sorts of things. And so there's some subset of politicians who are motivated by money. Go figure, right? There's some set of politicians who are motivated by the power. And hopefully what what I want more of, and I think what most people who follow uh, community uh, events, govern, local government. What I want more of are people who are who are really motivated by the work, who would who conceivably would do the work at any salary, um, except that we live in the real world, right? And so people do have families, they do have children, they do want the best for um, for their kids and for their spouses, and so that salary does does matter um, on a certain level. But yeah, Donna, I imagine that there are people out there who. Um, you know, they, they, they want to keep up with the Joneses. That's not my argument for why we should pay. More. Well, I know I have a different argument for why we should be paying um, politicians more. I'm not, I'm not interested in those folks that they need more money because they just want a bigger car, well, a nicer car. And, I, or, and I'm not meaning to suggest that what I'm meaning to suggest is that your worldview changes when you're in a different world. I have a friend who was elected to Congress as a very progressive candidate. He is now the attorney general of Minnesota. But when he was um, elected to Congress um, in, you know, years ago, it was something like 2006 or 2007, um, I went to visit him in D.C. And he said, you know, the day I got elected, banks started hosting fundraisers for me and started offering me things. And so, you know, power is corrupting. Okay, you don't mean to be corrupted, but you're surrounded and people offer you things and you start getting invited on yachts and to these vacations and places and the temptations are there. So I'm not suggesting people are doing things because they want a car. I just wonder if some people, not everybody, but some people's psyches might be changed. That's one thought I have. Another thing I'm thinking about is the power of the position to attract people who have a lot of experience and excellence in certain things and who are willing to make the transition. Like, what would it take for you? I know you're a school board member and you're running for this position while you, you ran for this position twice while also running Develop Detroit. But what would it take for Sonia Mays to decide, you know what, I'm going to stop Develop Detroit and I'm going to run as a politician to be paid as a politician in this in, in the city? Is it attractive and does pay impact your thinking on that? I, I'm a little so on this on this point, Donna, I think I'm a little bit unusual what was attractive to me about school board was that it didn't pay it. That's what I mean. Yeah, that that's <laughs> what I mean. Is that that you could do the school board and keep your day job. Yeah. But what would it take for you to give up your day job? Because you couldn't run Develop Detroit and be a Detroit City Council member. I'll be honest. I have thought about this. I have thought about like what I thought about it in terms of what the number would need to be. And and so I'm going to answer your question directly and then I want to pivot to something you said earlier. So um, it's less about the number and more about the insulation. 
So I think you make a really good observation when you talk about getting inside the beast of being a politician and the I don't I don't I think people have a sense of how much money is floating around and what's at stake without knowing the actual scale and magnitude of it. And so, you know, even at a school board level, particularly now that we have all of this COVID money, there's all sorts of business interests who pop up who want to have a conversation. And they, you know, if you position yourself wrong, they'll try to wine and dine you. And so for me, I, um, I'm a purist about the work. Like I do school board because I believe that this is and should always be the best public educational system, particularly for black people um, in urban America. And I I believe in that vision. And so I'm a purist in that. And I wouldn't want to be in a position where I wasn't insulated from doing exactly what I think is the right thing at all times for the people that I serve. And um, and I think that gets I think that gets harder for people. Right. When you're like, you know, hey, come on, come hang on, come, come hang out on my yacht and have this like fabulous time with you and your family on the weekend. And I'm not interested in that kind of stuff, but I wouldn't want to be running for office if I didn't feel like I had sort of the mental, um, what do you call it? Like Mm -hmm. shielding from that pressure. Cause it is real. Like it's a real thing. It is. And you know, and I'm not trying to suggest that most people can't handle it because most people don't get convicted of corruption. Right. But you have outliers and maybe they're not so far out because it happens continuously and mm-hmm. so we have to really think i love the systems thinking right mm-hmm. uh, when a year, years ago about 20 25 years ago i read the book the fifth discipline and um, peter Sengay wrote about the need to engage in systems thinking and running organizations and how we look at people and not systems and a lot of times if we don't fix the systems we just keep getting the same result and so i love that systems thinking um i did some research on it so when you said that, I said, let me research this and see if there's anything written about, um, you know, salary and corruption. And, and what you find? I found that there's a whole lot of research on corruption in developing nations. Yeah. We talk about that. And a lot of times that corruption is like the cost of a transaction. A lot of times that's because public officials are really poor or greedy, and they have control over these processes, and so you have that. I found that um, there were a couple of research projects that were done in Spain, and almost not, I could find nothing in the United States that really asked those questions. So if there are any researchers listening, here's a question for you. Let's take a look at it. But in Spain, unlike most of Europe, they have in their cities what they call a strong mere form of government, and guess what? So do we. And so I thought, this is fascinating. And what they found is that the strong mayor um, government, as opposed to a city manager with the city council, lends itself to more corruption than when you have a professional manager who is executing on a daily basis and the legislature, the legislative body is the only paid body. And I thought that was interesting. That's interesting. The other thing is that in systems where you have a lot of debt being floated, and you have a lot of development activity, there's more opportunity for corruption. And that makes sense. And then finally, in communities where there's not a lot of transparency over public process, where things are getting done in the dark of night and not in the light of day, um, you have that. And right now we have in Detroit what I would consider to be fragmented government. 
you've got the mayor, you've got the city council, and you've got 150,000 authorities that are responsible for one thing. And each authority has a board, each board meets, and they're all responsible for Public Meetings Act, but you can't find the minutes for most of them until two, you know, after the fact. And so as a citizen, it's really hard to know what decisions get made, when and how. And that gives rise to a condition so it's not just the salaries, it's also the condition of transparency that we could begin working on in our community so that there's a greater level of accountability. What do you think about that? What do I think about? Should we have a greater level of accountability or, or? more transparency? The, the idea that the, the systems that we have are not currently transparent as they could be. Yeah, I mean, look, people are going to steal like you can you can talk to anyone who runs a large company, a small store, whatever, like, like, like there are people in our community who are going to steal given the opportunity mm-hmm. and, um, and shining a light sunshine, sunshine is, um, one of our, you know, go-to tools for keeping people in line. Right. And so I, so yes, so more transparency, uh, potentially can lead to lower incidents, um, of, of graft in the political sphere. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have any big objection to that. I, um, where I push back on that is I think historically we've had, um, a whole ecosystem that served as that kind of transparency check and balance. And we're moving through a time of, of great fragmentation for the media. And so if you kind of think about who, who was sort of the primary watchdog, in exposing political corruption um, over the last several decades, media, investigative journalists, they really played a big role in that. And um, and I think uh, there's no there's no great surprise that journalism is going through a period of reckoning. Social media has really um, redefined that 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 um, that that model. And so, in a way, we've kind of lost as a community. We've lost one of our strong. Um, checks on on public corruption, and I'm not convinced that the average citizen um, wants to have to comb through layers of government. Government by design is really complex, and so I don't I don't know that the answer is to make individual citizens responsible for being the sort of minute by minute check and balance right. on the political system. And, and so when you have this fragmentation, they have to be. And I'm going to pick up to Kat Stafford and Christine McDonald, who are two examples. And Kat Stafford has now um, earned international acclaim, acclaim and is now performing a national role as an investigative reporter, really helping to um, document what's happened. And we, so we do have some great um great investigative reporters who've operated in our city, but I'll give an example of a deal that took place. And that is the Fiat Chrysler expansion took place in our backyard. Really, when you pulled up and you saw that factory, that's the expansion of Fiat Chrysler. Now Stellantis, Um, there were so many moving parts. There was the land purchase that went through the Brownfields development authority, but it also had to go to the Detroit economic growth court, Corporation. It also had to go before city council and it also had to go before the neighborhood advisory council and figuring out who did what when was really confusing. And I remember sitting in a city council meeting after it was exposed that the city had um, had voided blight tickets for one um, property owner who was a known best known slumlord in the city of Detroit. 
blighted those um, voided those those blight tickets and exchanged 14 properties on one block of Ashland between Jefferson and the river in exchange for a couple parcels of land. And I remember city council members saying, well, I didn't know that. I didn't, you told me this part, but I didn't know that. And so it was clear to me that even city council members could not always keep track of everything that was happening in these deals. You had one corporation who was selling land to another corporation and then had to be approved by somebody and the money had to come out of another pot. And by keeping everything that divided, it made it very difficult for a city council person even to say, I'm accountable for approving this transaction when so many moving parts took place in such a compressed time frame. Or when you look at the um, demolitions in Detroit and you look at the role that the Detroit Building Authority played, the Land Bank Authority played, and all of these different moving parts making decisions. It's like, I don't know who's responsible for what, when in some of these instances. And one of the things the mayor saw was I'll create a demolition department inside of the city so that you don't have to track everything down. You have one set of people who are accountable. And that was proposed as a reform. But it feels to me as though that kind of transparency where for citizens who want to monitor and city council and elected officials who want to monitor, they know where things are. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start by saying it is the job of city council to approve these these transactions and these contracts. And that is an incredibly complex job. And I think that was one of the things that I was really trying to get through on my on the Facebook post that led us to this conversation is just how complex of a job it is to be on city council. And so when I raise a question of should we be paying our elected officials more, I don't actually just mean city council. I mean their staff. I mean, what is the number that we would need to pay city council, their support staff, their legislative aides to attract and and I and I do want to say that um, that I, I spent time working in the city and public servants are they are really doing God's work and mm-hmm. um, and we have some really hardworking servant uh, public servants here, but what would the number look like to provide enough staff and resources so so the Byzantine Chrysler transaction was understandable right because I want my city council people to be able to articulate why they voted for something mm-hmm. and to not be caught off guard. Um, as a school board member, I have to own it, right? Like if I didn't if I didn't understand it and I still voted for it, I have to own it and I have to be held accountable for that. And so so I don't think that the complexity of government is lets you off the hook. Um, oh, I, I, for, yeah. I agree. I'm not letting anybody off the hook. You know, I was as angry as everybody else. But what I am saying is that as a citizen, I think that, you know, this movement towards more authorities and more boards and more bodies overseeing, I'll give another example. And we well, I want to move on. But, you know, we talk about the flooding. And someone said, well, you know, there's an interceptor that runs from north from Oakland and Macomb County into the city of Detroit. And the interceptor authority should be responsible for creating a retention pond that would hold that water during heavy storms so it was not flowing into these already overwhelmed systems. Well, first of all, who knew there was an Oklahoma Comb Interceptor Authority? I mean, somebody knew. 
But here I am a citizen, I consider myself pretty astute. We are really educating the community on stormwater management and I had no idea, so I looked it up and indeed there's an interceptor authority. Why do you have an interceptor authority, a Great Lakes Water Authority and Detroit Water and Sewage Department? Why do we create these separate bodies? And this authority is making decisions on tax taxpayers' money and there's absolutely no public oversight because the public doesn't even know. And so while I agree with you on everything you said about paying people well enough, if you're going to have well-paid attorneys on one side and well-paid accountants on one side, I want my city council people to be able to stand with them and be able to attract people with those same credentials. But I also think that it's a combination. I think that we've got to simplify government such that it's because I think that that creates opportunities of pockets of darkness where decisions get made. And I want to minimize pockets of darkness in our government while also elevating the credentials of people attracted to lead at every single level. And I'll say this, Detroit Public Schools pays better. I admire the fact that Detroit Public Schools has increased pay for teachers. That I mean, I stood up and, and had a hallelujah moment when I saw that we were paying on par with suburban areas. Our superintendent is well compensated. The leadership is well compensated such that you're attracting the best and the brightest to many of these roles. And I think that is so important. You still need a strong school board. You still need corruption controls. But I think that the fact that you are not leading a governmental unit of underpaid people contributes to the turnaround and success of the district, especially when you start talking about paying the teaching staff what they, you know, you can't pay teaching staff what they deserve, <laughs> but you're paying them, you know, closer to being on power. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a daughter of a longtime DPS educator. And so it, it to your point, it, it is hard to pick a number to like, you know, pay teachers their value. But um, but what you're not going to get from me is an argument um, that, you know, people make up government and and we have to figure out a way to value the work that they produce. And so I, I'm I am it. I appreciate the feedback that we are headed in the right direction on the school board. We're not done yet, but we are headed in the right direction. So. Yeah. It's yeah. exciting. Yeah. And, you know, I, Donna, just govern, government is, you won't get an argument from me about, I love a more streamlined government. Um, you know, I, I think uh, from a policy standpoint, that makes sense. Uh, but the government that we have is Byzantine, it's complicated. Uh, I do think people have to question if that's not by design. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that's that that's kind of my point. Yeah. And I think the point, one of the, the two two reforms, I you know, you made me think in two reforms I thought about. One was the salaries. We got to change the salary structure of public work. Public service should not be free. You know, um, and the second thing or should not be the kind of service where qualified, highly qualified people have to pay a pay, uh, take a pay cut to serve. Um, the second thing, after I did the research around transparency, I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. And then the third thing is I really have, think we need to examine whether or not strong mayor government is the most efficient and effective way to lead a city. Um, and that's not something It's interesting. We had a whole charter commission and they came up with all kinds of things, but they never took on that question. Um, and maybe that's not the role of the Charter Revision Commission, but I think I would hope a researcher would be listening right now and say, let's examine what are some better ways for excuse me, the city to get things done. I'd, I'd like to add one thing to your list. And I, I'll say mm -hmm. I am I am closer to a strong mayor 
um, system of government, having worked inside of city government than than anything else. But I'll you know I'll concede that there may be a connection between that form of government, a heightened connection between that and 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 political corruption. The thing that I would add to your list, though, is um, I I have increasingly gotten concerned about the 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 impact that money has on our um, identifying and sourcing candidates. And so if I could add something to the list, I would really push for um, some kind of campaign reform that really um, neutralizes to an extent the role that money can play. Like at the end of the day, I want to know what my elected officials stand for. I want to know what their capabilities are. I want to know who they are as people. I want to know what their vision is, what their ideas are. I want to know how they plan to do the job. Um, and I want to hear from as many people who aspire to the job as possible and not necessarily only hearing from the people who have the richest friends or access to the most amount of money. And I thought for a while that social media was going to be a neutralizer in that. I thought we were going to see some equilibrium. And for a short period of time, we did. But then I think now we're at the point where the money is just rushing into social media and dominating that conversation. And so I love to see a structure where, I don't know, everybody got the same amount of money or that, you know, there was some kind of real limit on outside um, funding that comes in. But, but I think controlling for that would produce better, a better pool of um, not a necessarily better pool, but it would, it would, I think that would allow uh, people's individual voices to have um, great have have equal reach. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think actually that may be the most important piece when you look at democracy. It's what my friend was saying to me, um, Keith, when he got elected to Congress. You know, and a bank is giving him money. Um, I need money to be run for election. As soon as I win, I immediately have to start raising money for the next campaign. And when I have to raise money for the next campaign. People are putting money in, and this makes me somewhat beholden to these people unless I have a very strong ethical code where I'm not going to vote on their behalf, and they're going to send lobbyists in. One thing, those of us who are uh, more on the progressive side of things, and I consider myself a progressive, um, we don't do a good job having real lobbyists. We don't do a good job really figuring out how to promote policy, specific policy changes that we want to see sometimes as broadened strokes. But we're not, you know, sending in language in the way that some lobbyists do. When you look at the role of, for example, the uh, auto insurance lobby in deciding and helping to dictate what happens, or you look at the, the significance, and you know this because you're working in housing development. When I did years ago, I remember I was serving as the chair of CDAD, and the, um, the, the builder's lobby was huge. <laughs> they wanted to not, they didn't want Detroit to be prioritized in terms of home building. And they didn't want Detroit projects to get more points and so they restructured the qap for the low-income housing tax credits a qualified allocation plan which was the blueprint for how money was spent to favor suburbs or to favor non-inner city communities and so you know i'm like wait a minute should they have that kind of influence but i know they're putting money in and so i would agree with you i do want to talk about a couple other things and then i want to make sure we close with the good work you're doing with develop detroit because yeah. i was really excited to read something but um, i'd be remiss in reading your biography and i just actually read it today and just realized that you had worked so closely with kevin orr 
and also with the bankruptcy and helping Detroit with the bankruptcy. And around here, in many parts of Detroit, there are many people who believe that the bankruptcy was a contrived um, um, crisis, contrived by many forces, not necessarily by the near-term forces, not by Kevin Nor, but there are many people who will say that the revenue-sharing deal that um, Archer reached with Engler that was just left on the side contributed. There are many people who would say that residency contributed and that there were structural causes for a financial crisis that in, ended up leading to the credit swap deal that Kwame Kilpatrick entered into um, in his last term in office that ended up, you know, falling apart and creating a huge financial hole after the um, market fell. And so the market, um, there are people who say, well, it's just inefficient government. And there's other people who would say there are things that Detroiters could not control that contributed to the fall. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that um, that those that analysis is off? Would I would I agree that all those factors contributed to the road that it, that ended up on base? Yes, ended up with that those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't I don't even really know that there's much of a debate about that. To be honest, like I don't know that there's much of a debate that you know residency changed the the composition of who was living in the city. That revenue sharing wasn't honored the way that um, it should have been. That the the bond deal that Kwame Kilpatrick um, structured was ill-advised given the housing crisis, but right? It was, but it was ill-advised, right? But at the time, it was celebrated by the, both Chambers of Commerce, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, and the Detroit Chamber of Commerce, the Detroit News, and the Detroit Free Press said, this is the way. And then when things fell apart, it looked irresponsible in retrospect, you're not you're not going to get any argument from me on that. Like like I I give I I I probably give too much credit to elected officials. You heard me talk about how complicated government is. Government is really complicated. You're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with money. You're dealing with all of these diffuse interests. Um, and, and and even policy is imperfect because policy happens somewhere like you know academic land and not really in practice. And um, and and no matter. What decision you're making in government, there is a high likelihood that there is going to be an unintended consequence. And nobody has a magic ball of like what the range of those consequences can be. And so, yeah, I, 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 I am, I accept that given the circumstances that the Kilpatrick administration had to deal with, that seemed, that probably seemed like a really good deal at the time. But, you know, I, I also worked on Wall Street at the time. And so um, and so if you were reasonably close to the market, you probably should have been saying, well, I don't know, maybe here are some of the things that could go wrong. But but Donna, all of those things led us to the point that Detroit was facing at minimum of financial restructuring and now we know an actual municipal bankruptcy. But w- whenever I have this conversation with people, I'm always like, look, like, yeah, we got to be informed about the history because that helps us understand how we get out of a problem, how we do better next time, how we create better policy outcomes. Um, but standing in that moment facing bankruptcy, I, 
I don't know that that changes anything, well, right? I, like I can concede that point to you all day long, and that's not. It would not change the. It doesn't change the past. Yeah. We can't change the past, but it could. We could look at the future and say how are things organized and begin wanting different things, right? Because there was a time when cities were supported by the federal and state government much more so than they were when cities became associated with black folks and other non-white people. Um, when there was just reduction in amount of aid and there were attacks and assaults on Detroit's autonomy you know, the residency rule was a decision by the state to d- change the trajectory of our city. It was not about um, changing the state rule. And so I think what some analysts have said is that cities in the United States have become dependent on bond debt and less dependent on other sources of revenue and the continuous dependence. And right now we are dependent on bond debt to demolish homes and dependent on bond debt for so many things. And so we are not, even though we exited bankruptcy, even though we exited the credit swaps, there is this financialization that some people will say the cities have become financialized in such a way that, um, companies like Standard & Poor's that are credit rating agencies really help to set public policy. If the Credit & Poor's, for example, and this is an example that they used, if Credit & Poor's is saying we need to collect water, um, you know, we need to collect water revenue and having more water shutoffs will help do that, that that will help drive policy. Now, there are people who say that's not the case, but I think, is it fair to say that city government in its complexity sometimes is looking to places like Standard & Poor's and saying we've got to make decisions that they approve of in order to continue getting these bond ratings that make debt affordable because we are so dependent on debt. Is that fair? I I don't know. I almost almost wonder if that's a little too specific, Donna. So I keep asking people to kind of take me back to this like mythical time where our local and state and federal government actually centered and cared about black economic well-being. And so I I hear this argument a lot that like cities have been abandoned because black people have moved there. And, and yeah, so a hundred percent agree with that. Um, But I, I challenge people to kind of show me this environment where, um, where our government didn't abandon the economic needs of black people. That's just what we... We're in 100% agreement on that. (laughs) That's racism, right? That's structured and institutionalized racism. But I'll give an example. How would you evaluate when people, when, when a suburb is trying to sell itself to people, they sell themselves by the amenities they offer. A suburb's value is based on the quality of the amenities, the quality of the schools, the quality of the housing, and the well-being of its citizens. That's the rubric of suburban well-being. Cities are judged by things that are not related to that. We can shut down all the recreation centers and say, you know what, this is fiscally responsible. And so fiscal austerity makes sense where we disinvest in the kinds of things that no suburb in the urban area would ever, no successful suburb would ever disinvest in um, as a means of demonstrating sort of fiscal restraint. 
I don't hear people saying in other places, let's be fiscally cautious. I hear people saying, let's invest in these things. And so I do think it's true. I do think it's racism. I do think that when white people, white wealthy people move to the suburbs, the desire to maintain cities change because they were no longer there and the amenities that were created in those places no longer serve those people. I think we're saying the same things, but differently. And so it seems to me as though looking at it, maybe given the existing structures, these are the inevitable outcomes, but it might be helpful for us to imagine a world where structures were differently, not just how people got elected, but also where you had other kinds of, um, you, you didn't evaluate whether or not you were improving neighborhoods by the value of housing going up. Yeah, I would. So, so if I were going to focus on something structurally in that in that context that you laid out, it would absolutely be property tax reform because the the reason that we have to go to the like fine, we can be angry at the bond at the rating agencies, but the reason we have to go out to get a bond that has to have a grade is because um, the city doesn't raise enough near-term revenue to take care of whatever problem is trying to solve. And mm-hmm. those suburban communities that you mentioned, they they have a different relationship to funding because of how property tax is it supports um, our cities. And, um, and so to me, that would be the boogeyman. That would be like, you know, we have set up a system where wealthier communities they have the luxury of ignoring the, the 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 rating agencies and not having to do bonding because they simply are allocating um, resources better. And by the way, these are I can make the argument that a lot of these are shared resources, right? Like a wealthy community, a wealthy suburban community, those folks are driving on roads to, to that we all pay for to get to jobs that probably have benefited from some kind of tax abatement to be there. Um, they're using a water system that we're all paying for. You know what I mean? And we're so paying like, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so like this whole idea that the suburbs are just somehow like doing it better, like give me a break. Right. And so that kind of like, to me, if we're going back to where we started, which right. is systems and structures, Tax the bo- reform. The boogeyman is not the credit rating agency because they're just no, they're we, just providing a service. That's our dependence on them is mm. the problem, not them. It is the dependence on bonds and stuff like that. Now you're absolutely tax reform is the issue, not just property taxes, all taxes, right? The downtown development authority and the fact that they're able to sequester or capture all of the taxes for all of the investments that are made downtown. All of the tax breaks that are given to developers, including the one behind us, including creates. my organization, I get tax breaks. But your tax breaks are not about downtown. So I think that we have to be careful about comparing what you're doing in the community to what's happening downtown. When the Downtown Development Authority was created, there's this concept of let's stimulate or catalyze development in the downtown area. I think it's pretty safe to say downtown has been catalyzed. And what you're doing is catalyzing development in neighborhoods. So I think that I'm not against having short-term catalytic products processes happen to create sources of revenue. I wish it didn't have to happen that way. I wish that we had a public purse that would just give you subsidy to do it, but we don't. And so you've been re- very creative. And in a minute, we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to let you brag about what you're doing. <laughs> but, um, but I think that the significance that I'm making is downtown doesn't need to be catalyzed anymore. And it gets richer and richer and richer. And there's no end in sight. 
we don't sunset any of these tiffs downtown and say, you know, now that you are wealthy, let's stop this so that the rest of the city can benefit from this increased investment. Um, tax reform is a big issue. The Headley Amendment is a big issue. Proposal A is a big issue. And the fact that cities cannot generate new sources of revenue. We can't do an entertainment tax, even though I've been pushing for one for a few years because... I pushed for it during the bankruptcy. I got, I, I, there was nothing that smacked me down harder than suggesting that we should have an entertainment tax. Yeah, well, tax. yes, I've, I've, that's <laughs> been, people have literally laughed when I suggest an entertainment tax, but I'm like, you know what, you all show up you in our community, you're downtown on, and we spend all of this money and sacrifice all of this revenue for you to be here, pay a tax. And I've you know looked at the economics of it, but it, it doesn't work now. And that's where I think we need to be. So I, I love the way you ended this and brought us back to taxation because I think that's where we need to be. I think we argue over things that we don't have to argue over. But what we can talk about is there's not enough means to meet our ends in the city of Detroit. Yeah. And when you don't, it's sort of like that check cashing relationship that some poor people have. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, okay, I got to go to the check cashing place because I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Is it exploitative? Yes. Should I be paying, you know, this amount of money every paycheck? No, but I have to. And we have that kind of dependence on debt that we cannot operate our city without it at this point. Not just Detroit, but most cities in the nation cannot operate without debt of some sort because we have restructured our tax systems nationally and also locally. Yeah, I am. I'm one of the things that I'm 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 eternally excited about DPSCD despite all of our challenges. But one of the things that I'm particularly excited about right now in this moment is the district has gotten almost 1.2 billion dollars in um, in what I call COVID money. So this is these are federal dollars that have been sent to the school district and and separately to the city to overcome. Uh, some of the damage that the the pandemic has done to our community. And um, this is once in a generation, um, this is once in a generation sort of financial opportunity. But what makes me excited about it is um, for the first time that I'm aware, the federal administration used a need-based calculation to distribute the money nationally. And so school districts that had greater needs as measured by poverty um, and um, and instances of economic distress got more money and wealthier districts proportionately got less money of this sort of pool that was um, that was allocated to support schools and so um, and so uh, our school district got a very large amount of money not enough to fix all of our problems but enough to really kind of go out and tackle some of these things that have been holding us back, facility condition, um, really investing in literacy, investing in staff. Uh, and so um, so I'm excited to see kind of where we land as we uh, start to um, uh, as we start to make these investments in our district. But but I quietly, I think people have kind of missed that the Biden administration did something that was uh, it, it, kind of over the history of how these federal funds have been allocated to communities was pretty progressive I, to say you get a lot more, a lot more, if you have a lot more to overcome because of the the history of disinvestment. All right. So we'll see what it we'll see what it means. But I think it could be a really interesting kind of pilot or test case for how we think about our relationship with funding cities in the future. I, I, I agree. And I'm especially excited having um, you at the helm of the, as a treasurer, having um, Dr. Vitti as a superintendent, 
and the other qualified people around the table because in the past you could get those dollars and squander them. We know we squandered money in the past and not use it towards those kinds of programs. I think we now have the structural integrity to make use of those funds in a positive way. And that's not to slap anybody on the, in the face in the past, but you know, when we had those dollars, those bond dollars, and we were fixing up schools, we built a 99-yard football field and other stuff I don't need to get into. So, um, you know, so anyway, congratulations we're, we're, yeah, on that. Yeah, You've come a long way. But. We have, well, <laughs> but we've come a long way from the challenges that we had. And so I am optimistic about where we're going with the schools, but I want to hear about Develop Detroit. Um, so talk about how it got founded, your projects. You have an interesting, um, I think, New Markets tax credit process that you're using differently than anybody I've heard of. So can you talk a little bit about your work? Yeah, we're we're a relatively new organization, although I'm at the point where I don't know that I get to say that much longer. We were created in 2015, and I, I, I'm the founding CEO, and I got involved um, in creating this organization because I had spent the prior two years working on um, Detroit's bankruptcy and got a bird bird's eye view of everything that was being planned for the city and everything that was going to be possible and what was happening with downtown investment, what was happening with midtown investment. And it was pretty clear to me in that moment that without some kind of in real intentionality, um, the, our, um, the places of Detroit where most of us who are from here grew up, I grew up off of Seven Mile and Evergreen, were not going to see that same level of investment and focus. And um, and I pretty strongly felt like I had a skill set, I have um, you know background, a network that allowed me to kind of jump into this work and, and hopefully make a difference. So we um, we we uh, we're a nonprofit and we're really focused on um, building housing that um, allows people to live in great neighborhoods with great amenities at a price that's affordable to them. That's what we're, that, that's what we've been focused on for the last um, four or five years. Um, about three years ago, we started building houses in the North End. And um, this was a really ambitious project. Uh, we were working in a neighborhood where uh, Develop Detroit had bought a couple affordable apartment buildings that we were trying to preserve as affordable. Um, we were getting a lot of pushback from lenders who who didn't want to finance the vision we have for these apartment buildings. We just wanted to make them better for the people who were living there, right? Like, just make them nicer. Um, but we, we were having a hard time getting um, lenders to finance that. And the critique that we got as an organization was there's just too much blight around these apartment buildings. There's too much abandonment. And we think this neighborhood is going to head in the wrong direction, not in the you know, investment decision, di direction. And so, you know, as an organization, we were kind of like, all right, well, watch us work. And so we went out and, um, and we assembled as much of a vacancy that we could in a three block radius and used a really creative financing tool to, um, to build a rehab. Uh, when we're done with the pilot, we'll, we'll have done 30 houses. And Donna, to date, I think that, um, I think that at least in the last 10 years, we've done, um, more of this sort of targeted neighborhood home ownership, home building work than anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the reception has been pretty good, you know, because we've, um, we, we try to work very closely with community. Um, yeah. And, and so two weeks ago, I also announced um, the groundbreaking for a brand new apartment building that we're building in the same area. So in total, uh, in this little micro neighborhood part of the North End, we've invested almost $60 million over the last six years, um, which is, um, 
you know, feels feels pretty good. And and the vast majority of that um, has, uh, you know, has just sort of been our organization. We work with Vanguard. We work we collaborate with the city. Um, but that has um, that is that has been a lot of private investment too. So it's not just um, not just public investment that we're doing in these neighborhoods. Yeah, well, you know, I think I've shared with you before that I was the first executive director of Vanguard. Um, Pamela Martin Turner is a colleague. I regard her as a friend, somebody I've known for a number of years. Um, I'm super excited about the improvements in that community. Most concerned about people being displaced. And so um, when I heard that you had this new affordable project that made me really happy because I want to make sure that development happens without so much displacement. You're going to have some displacement, but I, you know, we need to create both. And so I want to thank you for your work. Um, I, I think it's really important that we have our leaders thinking outside the box and not doing the same old thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And so the creativity that you've shown in the space that you're in is also exciting to me. Um, because you're thinking differently about how to solve a problem. And I suppose that comes through your long-standing work in all of these areas, as well as your credentials in the law, in business, and um, in in understanding municipal government. So um, thank you. I yeah. appreciate your leadership. Thank, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I um, I just, I really love the city, and, um, and I, I just feel so privileged and honored to be in this position where I can... Um, I can contribute uh, in this way. And so it feels good to run this nonprofit. The work is really, really difficult. But um, just in the North End alone, we've um, we've preserved almost 200 uh, units of housing. We're building new. Um, we have created homeownership opportunities. And we've all we've done all of it with this lens um, around um, equ- equity, economic equity, um, equity for legacy Detroiters. So it's, um, it's, 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 as you know, it's really, it's tough, thankless work, but, uh, but I appreciate the acknowledgement. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. <laughs> I think that <laughs> as, um, as women, as black women working in the community in the city of Detroit, we need to learn how to lift each other too and say thank you to those who are rolling up their sleeves and doing the good work. Um, we work in different ways and in different aspects of community development, but it takes all of us to make a change. Um, so I think that wraps up Authentically Detroit today. Um, if you have topics that you would like discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Um, so um, we now have shout outs. Um, usually this is something I'm really bad at. I think about all the questions I want to ask, but I always forget to recognize the great people on our team and also great people in the community. So shout out to you, Sonia. Um, also to our staff at ECN, um, who are, as we speak, um, planning a sustainability fellows graduation. So as soon as I leave here, I'm going outside and I've got to speak again. Um, shout out to Savannah Brewer, to, um, all of the staff in, in, involved in that, and as well as our LEAP co-chairs, Edith Ford and Michelle Jackson. Um, so, um, Can I jump in with a shout yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. Shout um, somebody out. So I understand that you guys did big things for DPS with our summer programming this, um, <laughs> this year. And so I want to I shout, I want to do another shout out to ECM because you were one of our key partners for our summer school um, and, and after school work this summer. And um, so I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. It was actually, you know, so wonderful. The exciting thing about this is that our colleague, um, Charlotte Buckman, called me up and said, I want 
people to be able to serve young people in the neighborhoods that they live. And so she issued this challenge. And we had to find community partners inside of the east side to work with us. And it was, to say the least, a little bit um, confusing at first because everything happened so quickly. But we wanted to be able to serve young people this year. And we did. And so I want to also thank our community partners, especially our um our program director, Tanya Aho, who had a lion's share of the work just making it all happen. So, yeah, you get to take credit, but you guys did a great job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening and catch the wave.